so thank you for that. Um, where is this? Have we got that? You have my slide? There we are. Okay, can I go back? Will that work? There we are. Success. Okay. So, thank you. I will probably talk in a rather different style to the previous speaker, um, in a different subject matter. But there were a bunch of things that I, that I, was, I was asked to talk about, um, really around the sort of fundamental macro trends that are changing retail, advertising, media, consumer behavior, um, partly as a result of the pandemic, partly as a result of lots of things that have happening, been happening before that. And I think a great place to start is this quote from the owner of Kraft Heinz, um, that I'm a terrified dinosaur. I was in this cosy world of old brands where nothing changed very much, and all I had to do was you know, optimize my supply chain. And suddenly, everything's being disrupted in every possible way. And I think you can generalize this across sort of 20 or $25 trillion of consumer spending, where um, everything's changing. All the old market structures, value chains, um, business relationships are breaking apart. And really, no nobody knows what happens next, whether that's in CPG or, or retail or brand or e-commerce or TV. All the old value chains break apart. Nobody knows what comes next. And so there's a very traditional way of thinking about e-commerce, which is that you make a chart of, well, this is retail spending, and this is the part that can't go online, like restaurants and groceries, and the portion that can and the portion that already has, and it goes up to the right, and it's been a really boring chart for the last 20 years. Um, it just goes up a little bit every year. So you can see here in 2020, because we were all shut up at home, it went up a little bit more, actually not that much. Um, but this is actually, I think, a particularly unhelpful way of thinking about this, because this comes from a world where we thought that e-commerce was this separate thing, whereas the world today is that everybody will buy anything online, but you know, not quite at the same speed, and we haven't kind of converted all of it um, to the same degree. And so it doesn't really make a great deal of sense to say that toys and groceries and electronics and grocery are all somehow part of e-commerce. They're all different things that we buy in different ways. I think what's much more useful is to say, well, anyone will buy anything, but how do you get it? And so there are some things that can come through the mail, um, that come through as a parcel, and quite a large proportion of that is already bought online. And there are other things that you will buy online, but you can't, they can't get them through the mail. Um, and that, on the one hand, means uh, restaurants over on the right, and then it also means things like groceries and furniture and all sorts of things for your home, where you have to go and get them, or that you need a truck. And if you break apart retail in that sense, you actually get much more of a, an understanding of what's really going on as all of these industries shift across um, to buying online. And so if we look at e-commerce, um, or the parcel side of e-commerce, Amazon now delivers most of its own parcels, and it's now bigger than FedEx and UPS combined in the USA. It delivers about a third of all parcels in the US. But if you look at food retail, food e-commerce, half of food e-commerce is either collected or, or delivered. So it comes in a truck, or you go to the store. It's a completely different logistics model to um, to Amazon. The same thing, of course, for restaurants. Something between a third and a half of restaurant spending in most countries is actually either takeaway or delivery. And it kind of feels slightly odd to talk about this as e-commerce, because you were doing this 40 years ago. You just telephoned the pizza restaurant, and they delivered you pizza. And somehow, if you do that with an app, it's become e-commerce and digital, but it hasn't really changed at all. Um, 
What does change, of course, as we move these things to apps, is it's not so much you change the logistics as you change the restaurant. And so we have this wonderful phrase, dark kitchen, which really means that if you're only doing delivery, you don't need to be on a busy street, you don't need a dining room, you don't need to group your, um, your cooking around a surge of diners at 7.30 and 9 o'clock. In fact, you can maybe have two or three different menus and two or three different brands being served out of the same kitchen. And so you kind of change the economics of what a restaurant might look like. You know, restaurants might actually be a good business for the first time in, in 200 years. Um, now, all of this has resulted in you know, a surge in, in, in employment um, and investment in warehousing and in delivery, massively more people driving trucks around the streets, massively more people working in warehouses. Um, and there's also this company called Amazon, um, which managed to grow 40% last year to $400 billion of net revenue, which is, is not bad for a kind of 25-year-old company. Um, and if you map Amazon against that logistics model, what you see is they're doing pretty well in the parcel side of things, um, something like 40% of US e-commerce, which is where they're strongest. Um, it's incidentally interesting to look at this chart every time people say Amazon is a monopoly. I think, well, what exactly do you mean by monopoly? Because um, that doesn't look like a monopoly to me. In fact, it looks like Amazon's going to get, you should be even more afraid of Amazon because it's going to get even a lot bigger than it is today. Um, but of course, what you also see is it's not in restaurants at all, and it's also not really in that side of things that get delivered, um, which you know, today mainly means groceries, which is why they bought Whole Foods. But perhaps conceptually the more interesting thing about Amazon is that it's unbundling um, not just the product, but the way it buys products. And so about 60% of what's bought on Amazon is actually bought from third parties using Amazon. So it's bought on Amazon, but not from Amazon. It's bought from the marketplace. And so it looks like you're buying from Amazon, but you're not. You're buying from somebody else. And the clever part of this is that what Amazon said is, well, if we're going to do shoes in Portugal, do we need to hire a shoe team in Portugal and get them to source the product, or do we just let anybody sell whatever they want on our platform and they can work it out? It's rather like um, Microsoft saying, do we need to make all the software for Windows, or do we just let people might write, write software for it and they can work it out? And so this has allowed Amazon to scale to more countries and to scale into more categories much more quickly than they would have done if they'd had to hire people to, to build those product ranges themselves. An interesting part of this, incidentally, is quite a lot of Amazon Marketplace is actually Chinese vendors who are going direct. So instead of them selling to US or European retailers and US and European brands, they now sell directly through Amazon under their own brand or their own, under their own brands and bypass the traditional value chain. Um, Meanwhile, another case of unbundling, Shopify, which some of you may have heard of, doubled last year to do $120 billion of GMV. So this is a software platform that lets you do an online store. People using that platform sold $120 billion worth of product last year. That takes it to about 40% of Amazon Marketplace, which is not bad for a company literally no one had heard of five years ago that came from Canada, of all places. Um, and so why is Shopify interesting, apart from the, the $120 fucking billion? Well, um, it shows you how wrong it is to say no one can compete with Amazon. You can, you just have to do something different. A lot of engineers would have said, well, this was already solved. There's nothing new here. We've been doing e-commerce software for 25 years. And well, we have, but Shopify made it an order of magnitude easier, and both for giant companies and for small companies. But the kind of the fundamental macro trend that it's riding is consumers and brands ready to go direct, ready to go directly to their consumer. Um, 
And so that, of course, has been accelerated by the pandemic. So here you see consumers spreading their purchasing journey much more broadly than they were before, so looking beyond just Google and Amazon and looking to other places that they might buy, because if you're locked up at home, you've got to try and buy everything online. But this, again, I think reflects a long-term trend. So this is, I think, really a fascinating chart. This is Google Trends, so search keywords on Google for best versus cheap. And so I think what this is telling us is that people used to use the internet as a price comparison engine. You knew what you wanted, um, and you went to the internet to find out where to get it cheap. But you found out, decided what you wanted before you went to the internet. But what happens over time is people do that less and less. And instead, they use the internet to try and find out what they should buy. They use the internet for recommendation, preference, suggestion, curation, expertise. The internet moves up the funnel. The other side of this is what happens to physical retail. Um, particularly, the USA has massively more retail um, per square foot, retail, uh, retail square foot per capita than most of the rest of the world. This is not going to end well. Every kind of retail analyst in the US has been looking at this chart for the last two or three years and thinking this is, this is all going to end, end, end painfully. But I think and maybe a high-level observation here. I use this phrase um, physical retail, and this reminds me of sort of what happened in the 60s and 70s when people talked about television and color television. And then at a certain point, you don't say television and color television, you say television and black and white television. You shift your presumption of the default. The same thing happened with the internet in the last 10 years. Remember when people said mobile internet? No one really says mobile internet anymore. Now it's internet and desktop internet. And the same thing now, e-commerce and retail? Well, now, no, it's, now it's e-commerce and physical retail because your presumption of the default is shifting. Um, meanwhile, of course, the brands that are selling through those channels are having to adapt as well. If we'd been having this conversation 25 years ago or 20 years ago, we'd have all have said, well, what's the category that will never go online? We'll obviously make up. No one will buy makeup online. Well, guess what? 25% of all L'Oreal sales now happen online. Um, and so they're having to work out, well, what does our channel look like and who are these people we're dealing with and how do we drive sales on the, on the web instead of driving sales at physical retail? Um, Nike, of course, is the best case study of this. Nike left Amazon after two year, doing a two-year trial. They've built up their own channel. 40% of all Nike sales now happen through Nike.com or through Nike's own stores, 20% through, through Nike.com. And they can kind of do that because they've got that brand and they can become the number one global fashion site. But this is an issue that really applies to every brand and every retailer. What you're really trying to do is serve two purposes. First is a logistics question, like how do I get it? Um, I know what I want, how do I get it? And the other is, well, discovery. How do I know what I want? How do I, do I know that exists? And anyone in retailing or advertising, marketing, branding, um, manufacturing of any kind is spending money in a bunch of different categories to serve that purpose. So you might be paying retail rent if you're a retailer or retail margin if you're a brand. You may have a delivery budget, you have advertising, you have marketing, um, maybe you have a returns budget. Um, and in the past, those weren't interchangeable. You couldn't say, should we launch in that city but not do advertising? Should we have more advertising in Portugal or should we open a store? You couldn't do business there without opening a store. You couldn't do business there without doing all of those things. But now those become interchangeable. You can say, well, if we open a store, do our returns go down? If we open more stores, does the advertising efficiency go up or, go, or down? Should we close the stores and put all the money onto Instagram? And those all become questions that you couldn't have asked before the internet. All of those things become interchangeable. Um, 
so we have a kind of complete transformation in retail um, and in brands. Of course, that's also um, matched by a kind of pretty dramatic set of changes in advertising. Um, I use this chart in every presentation, mainly because it took me about two weeks to make it, and so I'm going to make, get the most out of it. Um, and so this is showing you um, US advertising as a share of GDP back since 1950. And there's a bunch of interesting stuff in here. In fact, originally I made it because I wanted to know what TV did to radio advertising, which you can see kind of just down here in the bottom, bottom left. Um, the obvious dramatic thing is the collapse in print advertising. Um, you see over at the right and the growth in the internet. I think what's more, much more interesting is that advertising has gone down as a share of GDP by a third. And what I think that reflects is partly that advertising got much more efficient and much cheaper, but also that an awful lot of stuff is happening now that, wasn't called, that isn't called advertising. So if you're a real estate agent and you're putting your listings on a website that charges commission, um, you're, that's not advertising anymore. 20 years ago, you'd have been paying to put those listings into a newspaper. Now you're running your own website and paying commission to a listing site, and so that's not in this stati these statistics. So you've got a huge amount of repricing and reallocation, recategorization going in, and well, what is advertising anymore? What does that mean? How are you getting your customers? Um, you also have change within the ad business. So this is Amazon. Um, Amazon has an entry in the back of their accounts called um, Other Revenue which they say is predominantly advertising. And last year, that was over $20 billion. So they probably did $15 billion of advertising last year. And that's selling space on Amazon.com. The general term for this is now merchant media, which means you're a retailer, you're a website, you've got an app, you've got billions of people looking at it. That's advertising inventory. You could put ads there. And so Uber has hired advertising people. Instacart's hiring advertising people. Amazon probably did $15 billion last year, which is probably more cash flow than AWS. So people always talk about AWS subsidizing Amazon. Well, yes, but there's a lot of other things inside Amazon that are subsidizing Amazon, like the whole fucking business is subsidizing Amazon somehow, um, which may be why they don't lose money after 25 years. Um, so all of this poses a bunch of big questions if you're in the ad business. This is Don Draper getting drunk back in the 50s, but he'd be getting a lot more drunk today. Um, and then there's more things that are changing. So the big thing that's happening in online advertising today is what's called the cookie apocalypse, which basically means that the technology that was used to do targeted advertising for the last 25 years is now kind of going to go away. But that means that if you're in the ad business, you can't show ads to people who would be interested, and you've got no idea which ads worked, which is kind of a problem if you're trying to build a business. Um, and nobody knows really what's going to happen next, where the money's going to go. By default, if none of this, if we don't get a version two, then all the money will basically go to Google, Facebook, Axel Springer, and the New York Times, because those are the people who have lots of data already and don't get affected by cookies. Something that doesn't feel like an optimal outcome, but we don't know what will, really what will happen there. The other question, of course, is do you even need advertising? So these are three examples of people who built pretty big businesses um, by leveraging their celebrity. Tesla doesn't have an advertising budget yet, but Elon Musk manages to get himself noticed all the same. Um, the two other people here, somewhat more conventional celebrities, but in the past, they would have made money with an endorsement deal. They'd have done a deal with L'Oreal or Lancome or LVMH, and you'd see their face on poster, and they'd be paid a lot of money for that, but they wouldn't have equity, and they wouldn't own a business that was worth hundreds of, billion, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and again, that's a shift in the kind of businesses that you can create in the ways that advertising and marketing can function. 
So we have a huge amount of transformation in retail, huge amount of transformation in advertising and marketing. Um, well, at least so we have television. Well, that's not changing. Well, yeah, no, actually, TV is, is kind of changing as well. Um, this chart always reminds me of the Hemingway line, how did you go bankrupt? Well, gradually and then suddenly. And so we were talking about that, that this was going to happen for a long time, and then suddenly it happened. US pay TV penetration is probably down by about a third from the peak, and you see something similar in, in all sorts of other markets. Um, meanwhile, the software companies have got into the TV business um, are spending as much or more as any of the traditional TV companies. Um, Netflix spent over $15 billion commissioning original content last year, which is more than anybody except Disney. Amazon not far behind. YouTube here, this isn't commissioning content, this is paying to content providers. Um, hopefully some of that went to Uber. Um, but you know, they paid $15 billion to people like that um, out, out of the share of the advertising revenue. Um, there is incidentally a great story that in um, about 2010, somebody asked the CEO of Time Warner, um, are you worried about Netflix? And he said, uh, that's like worrying about the Albanian army. Doesn't look like that was a great forecast in hindsight, um, given the three technology companies that are now spending more money than Warner Media. Um, of course, again, the pandemic has accelerated this. So here we have UK 16 to 24s, TV viewing. They watch more um, Netflix and Amazon than all live TV. They probably watch more Netflix than all live TV. Um, they certainly watch more YouTube than all live TV. Um, and an interesting observation in this, particularly talking to, here talking to a European audience, um, if I go back and look at the previous slide, um, will that work? Try again. Yes, there we are. So. In the context of the US TV industry, these are big companies, these software companies, but they've become peers. They're competitors to Disney and Comcast, which is also NBC Universal and to Viacom and so on. But $15 billion is more than all the broadcasters in the UK, France, Germany, Spain, and Italy combined spent commissioning content last year. And now in the past, of course, yes, the US TV budgets were always bigger, but they sold the TV shows. You know, they sold Baywatch, they sold Dallas, they sold Friends to European TV stations. So it wasn't like an existential threat that you've got these enormous American media companies because they weren't building free-to-air channels in Europe, whereas Netflix is. So Netflix isn't selling its shows to the BBC or to French or German television. They're competing with French and German television and doing it with a budget that's almost an order of magnitude bigger than those European companies can, can, can use to produce content. So we have this sort of interesting fundamental sort of structural shift in what Euro particularly European TV looks like. Also, of course, worth pointing out that Netflix doesn't have advertising, um, which is another challenge for advertisers. Where do you put your money? And so if I kind of think about some trends here, there's this great quote from Jim Barksdale, who was a co-founder of Netscape, um, that there are two ways to make money. You can bundle or you can unbundle. You can combine things or you can break things apart. And what's happening now, and hence the title of the presentation, is that everything is being unbundled. All of the older value chains are getting broken apart. Um, all of the old ways of doing business, all of your old presumptions, all of your old routes to market get broken apart. Um, but most consumer brands are actually B2B businesses. You know, L'Oreal doesn't sell makeup. They sell trucks full of makeup. Um, Coca-Cola doesn't sell Coca-Cola. They sell trucks full of Coca-Cola. Well, actually, they sell syrup to people who make Coca-Cola who sell trucks full of Coca-Cola. Um, an awful lot of B2B brands, which we saw going right, going right back to book publishers in the early days of Amazon, have never sold to consumers. They don't really know what that would be, and that would be a completely different business. Now, everybody wants customer relationships. Everybody wants data. Everyone wants to somehow have that direct relationship. Most of those companies probably won't get it, but 
all of them are going to try. Um, and but but I think the kind of the, the, the question that runs across a lot of these these new kind of business models is um, so if you're a are you a tech company or are you a TV company or a retailer or a consumer goods company or a fashion company that's on the internet? And the kind of extreme case here clearly is, you know, if your local restaurant has a website, that doesn't mean they've become a tech company, they're still a restaurant. Domino's 20 years ago said, we're not a re restaurant, we're a light manufacturing and logistics company, um, which is also incidentally what newspapers were, um, which is why newspapers were in so much trouble when the internet came along. Um, and I think the same thing applies a lot today here as well. Is Netflix a TV company or a tech company? Well, there's a lot of tech in there, but what are all the questions that you would ask about Netflix? Like what shows, what right structure, what languages, what kinds of shows should they produce, how many episodes, what are the budgets, what do they pay the stars? Those don't seem like technology questions to me. Those all seem like LA kind of questions, not San Francisco kind of questions. If you've created a new company that's going to sell a new kind of bag or a new kind of shoe, and you're going to start by doing it on the internet and power it by Instagram ads, and then you're going to expand into selling on Marketplace and expand into partnerships with Net-A-Porter, and then maybe you'll do a pop-up store in Selfridges and Carter Bay. Are you a tech company or are you a shoe company that's selling on some new kinds of channels? And so I think there's kind of a bunch of interesting questions as all of this stuff um, deploys and becomes universal, where we say, well, how much of this is still technology and how much of it is that technology is changing um, every other industry? And so I think with that, I have a flashing zero, 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 so I think we've got time for questions.